Hi, this is Greg Voison, inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth podcast, episode number 874, with Jonathan Brill about his new book entitled Rogue Waves Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. This podcast, number 874, is brought to you by Marianne O'Brien, author of a new book entitled The Elevated Communicator How to Master Your Style and Strengthen Well Being at Work. In my interview with Marianne, we talk about how we can communicate when we are stressed and how we know we can communicate when we're at our best. The better we understand what drives us, how we impact others, and how our well-being affects our communication, the faster we can build healthy, successful, and satisfying work lives. If you want to learn more about Marianne and her new book, please visit her website at ConsciousCompany.com. That's www.ConsciousCompany.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with author Jonathan Brill about his new book entitled Rogue Waves, Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today, actually, he doesn't live in New York. He lives in Tiburon, California, but he happens to be back on the East Coast. Um, We're speaking with Jonathan Brill, and the new book is called Rogue Waves, uh, Future-Proof Your Business, Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Uh, Good day to you, Jonathan. It's midday where you are. Uh, you must be enjoying yourself. You're on a book tour. So uh, that's what happens when authors write books. They got to do book tours. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you. Uh, this is a wonderful book. I told Jonathan as I was making the questions for this podcast, I probably could have done uh, an, an episode two and three. We'll definitely do an episode two. Uh, so for my listeners, uh, be looking for that because this is one of those books Uh, You don't want to miss, especially if you're somebody in business and you're trying to survive through the changes that uh, are probably upcoming. I want to let people know about you. Uh, Jonathan, uh, he prepares leaders to profit from radical change. He's the author of Rogue Waves, this book we're going to speak about, uh, speaker advisor on resilient growth, decision making and innovation under uncertainty. Uh, His practical advice is based on decades of experience as an entrepreneur and Forbes 50 tech executive at HP uh, and managing partner of innovation consultancies that developed over 350 products for clients like Samsung, Microsoft, Verizon, PepsiCo, and the U.S. government. Uh, Jonathan is a managing director of Resilient Growth Partners and a board member at Frost and Sullivan, a major market intelligence firm that offers that has offices in 46 countries. Uh, he blows off steams and is futurist in resilience at Territory Studio and creative visionaries behind the sci-fi tech in Steven Spielberg's uh, Really Ready Player One, Ghost, and in Shell and Blade Runner 2049, where he creates products and better words for both supervillains and real-life heroes. Uh, he's an in-demand leader, speaker, contributor for TED, Singularity University, Corn Ferry, Morgan, uh, Forbes, when did they add the Morgan to Corn Ferry? I thought it was always just Corn Ferry. Uh, JP Morgan, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Forbes and Harvard Business Review. He has a, holds a degree in industrial design from Pratt Institute, spent years as a research consultant to MIT Media Labs, and in a management training for Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Well, as a futurist, uh, you have to have not only the education, but the practical experience. And this is the guy with both the practical and the education to go with it. And I just want to impress that on my listeners because it's very much so when you read this book, Rogue Ways, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Now, Jonathan, as a futurist focused on how trends will change um, the complexion of businesses, you spend time studying the factors that entrepreneurs 
don't, don't get a lot of time to think about because they're too busy growing their businesses. Um, why was it so important for you to write Rogue Waves? And what do you hope entrepreneurs and business owners will experience because of reading this new book? That's a great question. Uh, for the past 40 years, we've been living in a world that where it, trade harmonization has been increasing, things have been getting uh, more efficient, we've been optimizing our businesses. If you take a look at the next decade, what we're going to see is a world that's more volatile, right? We're going to see more change, and we're going to see that a lot of those efficiencies start to break down, right? What we saw in the face of COVID was our supply chains broke down. For instance, in, in much of the United States, we're still dealing a lot of those issues uh, right now uh, and putting out a book uh, book publishers had a terrible time because they couldn't get books out of china like these things you wouldn't imagine uh became huge issues the companies that saw this that they said hey what happens if there's a major disruption how do we make sure that we can take advantage of it those are the companies that saw growth in the face of COVID, right the companies that were resilient to it and so when i think about what organizations want to do in the future right mm -hmm. they want to be prepared for disruption because that's increasingly going to be the norm not the edge case mm -hmm. in fact it always was but i think we've done some significant miscalculation about the amount of disruption that we dig out of um, and when those things happen when uh, what we call rogue waves happen those are the points at which new winners emerge so what in in there's a guy named Nassim Taleb who wrote a book called The Black Swan, and it's about this idea that there are these incalculable random risks uh, that appear out of nowhere and change the world. The only problem with that theory is most disruptions aren't actually random and they're not actually uh, non-calculable. They're, they're things we can know if we choose to look hard enough. They're the result of individually manageable disruptions, waves of disruption uh, that collide in the same time and place to create mass. So the 2008 uh, financial crash is a great example of this as COVID. Uh, and so if you start to look at what the future holds and how resilient you are to it, how you can improve uh, your customer's ability to deliver in the face of change, that's how you create massive value. That's how a company like uh, Amazon did it. And it's, it's really easy to look at them and say, hey, you know, they're, they're, they're big, uh, they're, they've got the best people, they've got all the money they want, so on and so forth. But I ask you as a, uh, an entrepreneur, you know, if I gave, if I took my magic wand and I removed all of the barriers to your organization, could you deliver 10 years of growth in 90 days like Amazon did? No, right? it's a mindset. Couldn't, yeah. It's a mindset shift. Yes. It's a mindset shift. It's not, it's not just about capabilities. And I think that's the point of the book is that you know, if you figure out what, you know, how the game is changing and what game uh, and, and what the rules are before you make bets, before you choose your strategy, you're going to have a much better outcome. And that's how companies like Amazon, uh, companies like Zoom have set themselves up. And it's not just that they were well positioned when the wave hit, they were, but unlike many of their competitors, they were also able to take advantage of it. Well, and I think that is the key, one of the keys. In other words, I kind of look at, you You call it rogue waves. Most people say, look at the tip of the iceberg and what's below it. You know, are our entrepreneurs taking time to really look at the things that are uh, in your case, could come up with a rogue wave. You you write about it in the book and how it capsizes boats and sinks boats and so on. Uh, and I think it's just fascinating because it is a mindset change. You actually have to want to go there to be able to be somewhat predictive of what's going to happen. You know, and in that uh, light, um, I just wanted you to comment on why the competitive strategy and the blue ocean theories that are taught uh, at Harvard Business School and other well-respected universities and all kinds of places teach these theories um, are not a complete approach to preparing for a rogue wave. I mean, all of us say, well, get out of the red ocean and get into the blue ocean and find the spot where it's not competitive, right? But um, speak us, with us, if you would, why that's not complete. 
So both of those approaches, so a guy named Michael Porter came up with something called the five forces model, uh, which is really the basis of a lot of competitive thinking uh, since the early 1980s. Uh, the second book uh, called Blue Ocean Strategy yeah. uh, by, by Kim and Margon uh, talks about this idea that, hey, you know, maybe you can move into an adjacent market and maybe there's more opportunity there to do that. Um, both of these assume that the rules of the game, the, the dynamics of the system, will stay the same. The reality is uh, when a rogue wave hits, uh, when the economy gets hit by an iceberg, when everything, uh, when the rules go out the window, neither of those approaches really work. They assume uh, that the game will stay the same. Mm -hmm. What we saw in the face of COVID was that the game changed, right? The, the, the United States government played with a new monetary policy uh, that it hasn't explored in, you know, uh, you know, many, many years, the kind of stimulus spending. Um, uh, you saw, uh, you know, if you're a landlord, all of a sudden you get to evict people who aren't paying rent. Like stuff got really, really weird, really, really fast. And if you use those old competitive strategies, uh, they wouldn't have worked. So when the rogue wave hits, you want to think very differently about uh, how do you recover, right? How do you how do you right your boat if you if you fail to surf the wave, and then how do you take advantage of it? How do you take advantage of the fact that other people don't have a plan for the future? Yeah, uh, and you know, and, you and on the other side of that, you know, when you you speak about survive, you know, survive, thrive, but the other side of it is demise, death the death of these companies. We've seen so many companies that used to be in the top of their game now aren't anywhere near or they're gone, right? Completely gone. Uh, they were obliterated. And that, you know, you know, it has to come up in the equation, especially when you start thinking about it. I mean, I, I look at things like fax machines, right? I go back to the day because I'm old enough to remember that kind of stuff. And, you know, and you look at the Palm Pilot, and you look at all these kind of things, these devices, things that came out, and the evolution of that. And you speak about the distribution of randomness in your book, um, mm -hmm. and that there are two interrelated reasons that you can control and profit from randomness. Um, what are the reasons, and how do these uh, interrelated reasons work together? Because, you know, most people look at randomness and they think, First off, they think chaos, right? It's like that mm -hmm. the average business guy is going to go, hey, well, randomness is like something's going to hit me from the side and then I'm going to have to try and fix the hole in the, the ship, right? So speak with us about these interrelated reasons why they work together and how we really can uh, control the profit from randomness. That's a, that's a great set of questions. So when you think about uh, the the, the things that happen to us uh, that we're not expecting. You know, often if you take a look at a higher level or a lower level, you know, they're much less random. So you think about like Newtonian physics, right? Like kind of the, the stuff you probably learned in, in high school physics class. Uh -huh. um, and then you, and, and it's, it's all, you know, you do your math and you know, the, the, the apple always hits the floor at the same time, right? Um, well, if you go down a level and you start looking at uh, quantum physics, stuff looks really, really different to the point where Einstein was like, that's, that's just weird what goes on down there. I don't fully get it, right? Even the smartest guy of the 20th century didn't understand it. Um, and so my point is that uh, things that are random at one level are often uh, much less so at the other. You know, you were talking about icebergs. Um, you know, it was random that the uh, Titanic hit an iceberg, but if you take a look at that year, you know, there were 1800 icebergs crossing the, the, uh, uh, the, the Titanic's path, right? It wasn't, it's at a systemic level, a random thing that it occurred, right? It was, it was like a highly knowable thing. <laughs> if you keep running ships at full speed and you have 2000 icebergs, like you can pick the day it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Yeah, the higher probability that it would happen. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and then the, the second piece is that things that uh, are randomly distributed are often uh, self-organizing. So when you take a look at um, uh, 
if you take a, a can of coins uh, with nickels, quarters, dimes, pennies, whatever, yeah, any, and you shake it enough, what you discover is that you get a layer of pennies, you get a layer of dimes, you get a layer of nickels, you get a layer of quarters, right? So, so things that are random, if you shake them enough. Uh, they actually they actually self-organize in many cases and uh, so but scientifically that must be from the weight uh it's because of the shape and size yeah it's shape and size not the weight but the shape and size there's a whole yeah. there's a whole there's a whole science of packing <laughs> i'm gonna try that actually there's, i'm gonna get a, a jar yeah, and like fill it with some coins i've never absolutely. done it i've never done yeah, it. No, there's there's a whole there's a whole youtube world of 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 packing <laughs> science and, and like why why m&ms are the shape that m&ms are so that they get the right distribution of whatever wow. and yeah yeah uh anyways so we got geeky mathy there um but that that's why and so if you start from those two principles of uh of of um of structure uh you can you can start to actually understand a lot about systems that you wouldn't imagine that you could Interesting. So yeah, the interrelatedness. And we, and we dig we dig way into this in like a hyper not geeky way in the book. Um, just like uh, rogue waves are actually about a mathematical principle called a nonlinear Schrodinger equation. Like we don't. I don't think we even mentioned that in the book. No, uh, but you do. Fun, it's all fun stories. And I gotta tell people that's why that's why the book Jonathan is so pleasurable to read, because it the, the person who's not a scientist can pick this up and you know, really understand what you're talking about. The person who's not a futurist uh, can really start to put some sense around what they should be looking at. Now, can you speak with the listeners about the ABCs or of resilient growth as you refer to it? And how can business owners benefit from implementing your techniques and using your tools? Now, um, we said we will put this up on page 17. Page 17 of your book has a chart, which is just truly fascinating it's got lots of diagrams charts but that particular one kind of is the synthesis of so many things into one it's obviously the synthesis of this abcs but so speak with us if you would about that yeah so if you want to focus on both resilience and growth in your organization because i think they're interrelated concepts if you uh, in a world of disruption if you aren't ready for it, you're not going to experience sustained growth. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a baseline. Um, but if you are ready for it, you can take advantage of the disruption and you can use it, uh, use, use it uh, while everybody else is simply trying to respond. Uh, how do you get there? And I suggest that there are three basic principles, the ABCs of resilient growth. So the first is awareness, right? If your people don't know why they have to change, why would they? Mm -hmm. uh, the second is about behavior change, right? If you know the tsunami is coming and you're standing on the beach and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to take advantage of it, you don't know how to run from it, there's no point in that awareness to begin with. And then the third piece is about culture. How do you create a culture that uh, supports this kind of behavior? I do a lot of learning and development work. And uh, one of the fascinating things is that uh, companies spend all of this money on leadership training and whatnot, but then they have a culture that doesn't support that behavior. So you've got to have the culture that enables this. And you don't just need, you know, you don't necessarily need like board level support for what you're talking about. These, these decisions are, are decisions you can make as a team leader, you know, of eight, 10, 12, uh, 50 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and and actually create a lot more resilience in your organization, a lot more innovation uh, within your teams. Well, it is, it is, and they don't, um, they don't take, they, they take, they take more mental effort, but they don't take more time effort. Right. And I, because and I think what you I'm, pick up, you pick up all the time saving, sorry. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> you pick up all the time savings by the time you don't waste doing stupid stuff. We are going to put up um, a link to this page because links to this page in the next, I'm just going to show it because the reality is, um, for those of you who are only listening, you don't get to see it, but we'll have a link on the blog. Um, and that, with that said uh, about the ABCs, um, it, speak with the listeners about these five nudges that consist of air gaps, 
decentralization, bandwidth, latency, and scalability, and when combined intelligently can radically change the outcome of a situation. So those are four words, right? That most people, I'm sorry, five, that they're probably not even thinking about, but all of a sudden these five nudges come up. Uh, and I think it'd be good for them to understand what they are and then how they can change the outcome of a situation. Sure. So uh, th I think there are two concepts, <laughs> two concepts here. The first is in many cases, you can uh, just look at the situation and you can do something like change the timing or change the sequencing of the situation. So uh, if you're a manufacturer, right, it's always good to get paid before you order materials. Uh, for instance, so you change the timing, you change the sequence of the situation. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, that's not possible, right? Your your customer won't won't change the contract or whatever. Um, and so the question becomes, okay, well, how uh, or change their payment cycle or whatever. So the question is, okay, well, how do you uh, shift risk in the system? Like what, how can you shift the probabilities in the system? And there are five ways to do that. And they're what we call the five nudges. Uh, air gaps is like, you know, literally what it sounds like. If you're, uh, uh, if you have a dishwasher, right. And you have that little thing that gurgles uh, on, on by, right by your faucet, right. that's an air gap, right. It's, it's a yeah. point in the system where if there's a backup of water uh, it releases and it doesn't rupture the pipe. Right. And, and so it gives you that flexibility. Uh, the second is decentralization. So in some cases, you know, having like a linear path, whether you're, if you're a software person, maybe it's a waterfall path, or if you're a project manager, maybe it's a Gantt chart, you know, well, how, how do you make sure that you have flexibility if something in that, in, in that path, in, in that project management cycle breaks? Right. So you, mm -hmm. how, how do you decentralize things? And mm -hmm. like, if you think about like the Internet, right, that's a place where a lot of this happens. The, the, the Internet's mm -hmm. set up. So even though you, know, you and I are having a video conference right now on Zoom, uh, the, all these little packets of information are, are being broken up and maybe one's going through South Dakota and the other is going through Texas. And then it comes back and you're able to recombine it wherever you are. Bitcoin is probably a great example of that because that's that's got to yeah. be the biggest example of how things yeah. are decentralized, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the whole idea there is so that nobody can steal those monies and the codes and the, everything that goes along with it. I, I think how whoever came up with that is totally brilliant, fascinating. Besides trying to break down our monetary system, which it's it's <laughs> attempting to do at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the nature of disruption. Yeah, um, yeah that's exciting. definitely decentralized. Uh, yeah. Now, what about bandwidth, latency, and scalability? Yeah, so so uh, one of the so so you want to when you look at these, you, you know, how do you change the bandwidth of a situation? You know, oftentimes when you're uh, negotiating, for instance, a uh, uh, customer will say, "Hey, you know, I don't want to talk to you. I just want to review the the RFPs independent of of a conversation." Right. Well, can you break that? Can you increase the bandwidth? Right. Can you can you can you force a conversation with them to differentiate or understand or provide a better RFP? Um, and, and that's just like with with video conferencing. Right. Can you send 4K video or is it like some crappy thing where it's you know like a postage stamp of, you know, of someone you can barely see? Right. It changes the nature of the relationship. It changes your ability to respond uh, to it. The, second, the, the next thing is latency we were talking about, like how, how, what's the time between call and response, right? The way that you manage risk, uh, if you're uh, on, you know, if maybe you're, you're NASA here and, and you've got a colony on Mars. A spaceship right? out there somewhere. It's, right. And it's a six minute, you know, it's a six minute delay you know, between here and Mars. Well, well, that that changes the nature of communication. That changes the nature of risk management. Yeah, if you've got the Voyager and it's out at the edge, edge of the solar system, right? It's like 15 days return response time. Like it just changes the way you do everything. It's at Chiron. Uh, it's all the way at Chiron. Is it? <laughs> do you know it's, where Chiron is? I have no idea. Chiron is a planet that was discovered in 1978 by a guy, and uh, it's it's it, if you look on astrological charts, he's got his own little symbol with a K, and that's oh, Chiron. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's a C. 
It's uh, C-H-I-R-O-N. And the planet number, it's the most recently discovered uh, big planet. So it's a long way off. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not there. It's, it's more it's than not, seven minutes away. Let's put it that more, way. It's more than seven minutes away. <laughs> the way you engineer that is very different than the way you engineer something, you know, that's at your desk is all yes. I'm saying. So it's yes. a different strategy, right? Um, uh, and that's, that's talking about latency and then scalability, right? So one of the things that Zoom did really well this year was figure out how to sit on top of Amazon Web Services so that they could smoothly scale as opposed to trying to build their own data centers, right? So they made a decision that allowed them to, 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 to scale smoothly and, and quickly. And that's one of the major things that uh, gave them advantage this year. Amazing advantage, and they've done quite well. I hear uh, there's a lot of changes coming for Zoom, um, and who knows? It, it's it's interesting to see what'll happen. Now, you know, you tell a great story about growing up in the Five Islands in Maine. I love this story. Uh, can you tell the story and how the experience you observed uh, is a great depiction about how a town that has, was once a great fishing village. I'm not going to say it became obsolete, but let's face it, it kind of diminished. But this was your experience. And this actually goes along with so much of what you're writing about in the book, right? So it, it was a great place to insert the story. Yeah, Five Islands is is a town with a really amazing history. And so just a couple details that aren't in the uh, story. It originally was... Uh, a town that steamships, uh, people come out of Boston and New York and they'd come up for the weekend and they'd hang out there and there were there was a big dance hall and uh, beautiful hotels and and that all went away with the, you know, kind of as, as rail evolved and people stopped, you know, having, you know, the, the, the nature of the, the economy changed. So they had to reinvent themselves and uh, they really became a fishing village. Uh, and this, this happened across across Maine. Uh, and technology evolved, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, people were able to catch more fish. Uh, foreign trawlers, Japanese trawlers, were suddenly coming in and 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 pulling out massive amounts of cod, uh, you know, halibut, uh, bluefish, and it all went great until one day when the fish population collapsed, diminished. Yeah, you know, and, and just just if you you know from the surface, you know, almost out of the blue. You know, but what had been going on for many years uh, under the water, like the fish were perfectly aware of the problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, what's, what's, what, what's obvious for the fish is not always obvious for the fishermen. Um, and, and so what we should have been doing is looking a lot more systemically uh, at the problem, modeling what was happening, figuring out where those tipping points uh, could and would be. Uh, and there were people who were doing that at the time. They just weren't being listened to. And I think that's the lesson is like, you know, how do we listen to those people who are thinking seriously about the future and and, and how radically different it could be between tomorrow, uh, between today and tomorrow? You know, did we, how, how many leaders, how many executives thought, uh, you know, 24 months ago that someone sneezing in Wuhan would totally up in their business? Yeah, up in the whole world. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing about the fishing thing is also uh, the fisheries and, the, 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 you know, you look at how the industry has evolved. You know, yes, you could take trawlers and go get the fish, um, but you can also do farm fishing. And, you know, I know a lot of the salmon that's bought, a lot of many of the fish is coming out of uh, farm raised. Um now, you mentioned in the book, and obviously our listeners can see from the jacket of the book, that a rogue wave is not a simple just wave, uh, that it's not a regular wave. And in the same way that uh, it could collapse a the fishing stock that you just mentioned, it's not a regular event as to what happens in the, that happened in the five islands. You mentioned that uh, what the two have in common is that they're caused by the compounding of several more normal, seemingly phenomena. Uh, can you speak about these compound effects and why these effects are one of the most important yet misunderstood or understood concepts in modern business? 
So that, that's a great question. You know, when you take a look at uh, COVID is a great example. Um, we could talk about that. Let, let's go there. Uh, okay. So, you know, what was really different with this pandemic than previous pandemics? I think there's something most leaders fail to recognize, which is uh, 100 year pandemics, 50 year pandemics, they were becoming more frequent. We were just getting better at containing them. It was inevitable that this was going to happen and it wasn't going to take a hundred years for it to happen. Right. That's the first, that's the first thing is what we thought was a static risk was actually a highly dynamic risk. We just gotten better at managing it, but eventually it was going to flip and probably sooner than later. We didn't think about what the impact of that would be. So what really happened? What was different between this and, you know, uh, earlier pandemics in, in, in the, the, the 2000s and uh, 80s and 90s, uh, potential pandemics, novel diseases? The first thing is that we put a population about, about the size of Los Angeles outside of Wuhan. So we were pushing into the biome in a place where uh, we knew that novel respiratory diseases were common. That's why the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, is in Wuhan. Like, yeah, it's it not, it's like, yeah, it's, there's a reason it's not in La Jolla. <laughs> yeah. right? um, and uh, <laughs> so that, that's the first thing. Uh, the second is that this was happening across China. 400 million people, a population larger than the United States, uh, was doing this same thing, cutting into the wilderness to build new cities uh, or expand cities around China. They were connected by 16 high-speed rail lines uh, since, since the 1990s. Uh, and I think what's most important is uh, that between 2012 and 2019, the amount of tourists leaving China increased 10 times, moving it from an insignificant tourism spender to the largest in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we were increasing the likelihood of a spark, right, by, by pushing into the biome in these places where this specific disease tends to happen. Uh, and we increased the rate of spread by increasing the infrastructure. Now, both of these are good things for humanity. I'm, I, I'm a big supporter of, of urbanization and, and, and economic development. But what we didn't understand or fully grok was the impact of that. And we didn't have enough of a resilience plan to, uh, to respond when it happened. And I don't know, this is, this is conjecture, but I don't know that a better Chinese response or a better American response uh, would have changed the game. I think, I think the die was set. Well, it's, you know, it's still in debate. They're, what are they still looking at the Wuhan lab to actually determine whether or not that uh, COVID was, uh, was, ma was man-made um, versus, you know, it, like you say, the spark, them moving out, and it was eventually maybe going to happen. I don't really know. All I know is that there was a sequence of events somehow and transportation, as you said, outbound from China. Obviously, somebody landed in San Francisco, and I think the first outbreak was Seattle, uh, if I remember correct. Uh, that's where uh, somebody, uh, and I'm not certain it was from Asian descent either, right? Was it? Um, but at any rate, somebody was carrying. Uh, there's it. no, there's no, there's no reason to believe that. Yeah. First, first off, the second is we should look at the at the Wuhan. Uh, Institute of Virology, but that's by far the edge case that, yeah. that it came that it came out of a lab. Yeah, uh, that's that's an almost insignificant probability that that's what happened. Uh, from a scientific perspective, I think it's important to to explore that, ex, uh, explore the range of possibilities. But I, I wouldn't look at that as the most likely out uh, the most likely event. Well, I think that's society trying to create some kind of blame. You know, it, it probably has nothing to do with, with anything else. But, you know, you mentioned that while we can't prepare for every possible rogue wave, COVID, and that's a good example, uh, that we can categorize them by the type uh, of the impact that they'll have on our customers, competitors, our vendors. Can you address the rogue wave types and the characteristics of those rogue wave types uh, for our listeners and how they might be able to like, categorize them. Because if I'm a business guy sitting out there today and I'm manufacturing XYZ, I don't care if it's an iPhone or 
whatever it might be, you were with Hewlett Packard. So there couldn't have been any company that was more broadsided than Hewlett Packard um, when it came to printers, right? Uh, not that Hewlett Packard still isn't in the printer business, but they're in a lot of businesses that I think people aren't really aware that they're in, right? Yeah. Uh, that that's absolutely true. So, uh, you know, coming into 2020, uh, Hewlett Packard was in uh, a really uh, tough, small, tough spot. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Carl Icahn and Xerox were attempting a forced buyout of the company. Uh, its stock had taken a huge hit. Um, coming out of, and this is this is about riding the wave, turning it to your advantage. Uh, coming out of 2020, uh, Xerox's earnings per share, this is its, uh, HP's nearest US competitor, uh, are down 69% uh, by earnings per share, 69% right. by gap. Uh, that's stunning. Uh, whereas HP's have been stable and they were because of structural decisions that allowed uh, HP to take care of what, what I call the four foes of growth. It's uh, financial shocks, operational shocks, uh, external shocks, and strategic shocks. And we thought a lot about this as an organization. And we thought specifically about COVID or about pandemics, you know, what types of technologies could we create with uh, what's called microfluidics that would really uh, create value in the case of, of a, a situation like this or, or other medical trends that are occurring. Uh, the reality is Xerox has like had this really hard time. HP is launching a new business. I can't talk too much about it. Right. Uh, as a result, it's, it's public, but I, I can't talk too much about it uh, as a result of this. And, and that was the group that I worked with. We were, we were. The microfluidics. Yeah. One of my clients has seven patents on some pretty interesting things. He approached HP actually uh, with his patents to do something with that. And uh, I, it wasn't that they weren't listening. It just wasn't the right timing. I don't think, cause he's so well advanced in microfluidics and I understand how this can be applied to um, the healthcare field. Um, so there is a, there's an interesting element associated with that. Um, I'll hook you up with him after this podcast. <laughs> are you still there? Uh-oh. Yeah, I there think you we're are. Back. Ah, I think we're back. You probably didn't hear a word I said while I said that. <laughs> you, uh, I heard you talking about microfluidics. And, yeah, and one of my clients has a, a seven patents on microfluidics, and I'm going to hook you up with him because uh, he went to HP and presented yeah. his case. Yeah. So, um, HP, by the way, is the largest microfluidics manufacturer on the planet. Yeah, yeah, I know, and it's fascinating. It's it's beyond me scientifically, but. Um, how you could put a big screen TV together using microfluidics is, and how all these little things come together on a, 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 a 3D printer. It's just like, it's, it's, it's out so there, man. For, for, for the, for the audience, for the audience, cause we just science geeked. Uh, microfluidics is very precisely dropping little bits of liquid uh, right. at the micrometer or nanometer scale uh, at massive scale with high speed. So if yes. you want to, and the reason that HP is good at this is because it makes inkjet printers. So literally dropping millions of little drops of liquid in the right order at the right time at massive speed. It's, and, you know, it's phenomenal what you guys are doing and I can't hardly imagine. Um, you, can you also speak about addressing the threats and opportunities as well as today's to do's for tomorrow? And uh, can you speak with the listeners about doing the SWAT and what meaningful and what meaningful this meaning this can bring to avoid the rogue wave uh, that could take their business under? So if we got a business person out there listening, what's the SWAT? How could this bring up some meaningful understanding of what might actually take their business out? Yeah, the, the, this is a great this is a great question, uh, you know. The first, the first thing is kind of how you think about uh, your own strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. A lot of times uh, companies look at it and they look at their competitors in the industry and, and you do a best in class assessment and, and so on and so forth. The question to really ask is what are, your, what are those strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats when everything goes crazy? Right, not not in the current situation. Are you better than your competitors? What what happens when your competitors get disrupted too? 
right? What are the, your financial threats? What are your operational threats, uh, external threats, uh, and strategic threats? Uh, same thing for your customers, right? Because this isn't just a risk assessment. It's an opportunity assessment. Where, where, you know, where is uh, your customer's financial strategy at risk? You know, where, where might they have IT security issues, an operational strategy issue? Maybe where might their supply chains break down? Uh, what types of external threats could happen, right? We don't think of, uh, you know, wars as a likely thing here, but, uh, you know, you talk to, to generals and whatnot, they, they think that maybe there's a 30% chance of a hot war with China in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Right, that would be a really weird thing to have happen. Uh, yeah. But what happens if there's a massive external change, and then, you know, what what happens if there's a strategic issue, like your demand forecasts are off? Um, you know, you can think about this as a defensive and process innovation issue for you as an organization, but but what does it mean for your customers, and and how can you help them improve? their response? How do you, can you help them improve their resilience? Because those are the points where you get like board level interest uh, because you're hitting board level, C-level pain points and the cost of what you deliver doesn't matter anymore because it's mission critical. So you can take these same principles and flip them and turn them into, op you know, from, from thinking about threats and turn them and flip them into opportunities. And I think do, that's you, do you believe, Jonathan, that one of the biggest threats that we potentially see, and a scientist just came out, I think last week again, and conferred that, you know, the CO2 emissions and the rise in the temperature at 1.5% and the insurance companies all looking at the factors that between flooding, heat waves, the, 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 Desolate. The things we're seeing now are going to actually worsen. They say we're on a 20-year timeline to 1.5. Um, mm. I obviously, and I think many of my listeners, uh, don't really recognize the impact this could have on their businesses. Um, and I do know, because I used to deal with insurance carriers, that these guys are predicting all kinds of things and setting themselves up to change policies and actually change what they insure uh, they're, because they're, of the liability, in, <laughs> right? For, for sure. I mean, they're in, they're in the business of not losing money. Right. right? Correct. Correct. <laughs> uh, Correct. So what would you, what would you, what little bit of advice would you say, uh, you know, given we've talked about COVID, we understand that was a, an incident that was unseen. This is something people can see right before them. The question is, what is being done quickly enough uh, to mitigate this, this issue? And it, the scientists are saying there, and again, there's a lot of controversy, but that it isn't being done quick enough and we're not going to reach it. Uh, I think that that's the scientific consensus. I, I would add two things to, the, to this discussion. Uh, directionally, I think Absolutely, this is a terrifying, we're on a terrifying glide path. Uh, those types of models, it's the same type of modeling that you do to, to look at a hurricane uh, or to, you know, is it going to land in, uh, you know, Alabama or is it going to land in Florida or is it going to land in North Carolina or Bermuda, right? Like you, you use the same similar types of modeling. You also use this type of modeling to do things like look at the stock market and predict, you know, whether stocks will go up or down. Uh, my point is, you know, a lot of these things uh, are really useful, but only for a limited timeline. And I don't know that we can make hundred-year predict predictions with a lot of these models. Directionally, I think they're accurate because, and I think it's more foundational than than just looking at this modeling. I think. You know, when you just do a simple piece of math, that uh, we probably you know are going to have a couple billion more people entering the the U.S. equivalent of the middle class around the world in the next twenty years, uh, twenty five years. Just kind of think about the implications of that. And and what I mean is, uh, if you talk to Jared Diamond, uh, he's done some analysis that suggests that if you take someone out of rural poverty in say Mongolia. And you put them in, say, Austin, Texas, and in, in a middle class in a McMansion, their their uh, resource use goes up about thirty two times. Mm -hmm. Thirty two times. Now you multiply that. You take the, US, the, the the current global middle class, like the right. San Francisco equivalent, 
and, and, and you triple it and you multiply that use by 32 times, I mean, that's a massive increase in global resources. Well, plus, plus add not, to it the population growth on top of it, not just taking somebody out of their current circumstances, but increase the population growth. I mean, I think we're looking at 9 billion, right? Uh, pretty close. No, 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 numbers go up and down depending yeah. on the year or the analysis. Yeah. Um, but the real, the real question isn't about uh, just about uh, population uh, is, is total. It's about what's their ability to consume. Yes, and, the and consumptionism. That's, that's the, I, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the real challenge. And and like you know, like drinking from paper straws is not going to solve this problem. So my point is, yes, there's going to be an issue. Yes, there are going to be geopolitical tensions unless we solve this issue. Uh, I would also say with a lot of the type of modeling we're, we're, we're looking at directionally, they're giving us really good data, but they're not doing two things. You know, the first is uh, saying, okay, well, what if new information or a significant new uh, piece of foundational information has to be replaced in the model? Is it still accurate? So yeah. for instance, say we really do get our act together and we get nuclear fission uh, online and we get uh, geothermal fracking uh, technologies online in the next 10 years. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but if it does, that completely changes uh, the, the consumption and also right? the consumption of, yeah. uh, of fossil fuels and all kinds of things. And I, yeah. and I get that. So, and I, and I, I think and, you're absolutely right. It's only uh, predictive in one nature. Uh, if we do get our shit together, as you say, um, the, it could change the trajectory pretty quickly. Um, but it, it is something that I wanted to bring up because we'd use COVID as an example, yep. but that's another example of something that you could say is a rogue wave. Now, this it, book it is, is, it is, uh, for, for just let me respond to that for a second. It is absolutely a rogue wave. And it's an example of exactly why you want to prepare for uncertainty and figure out how to flip it to your advantage. The reality is, uh, over the last, uh, 120 years or so more billionaires have been minted in financial downtimes than in upswings yes and that's because the volatility creates room for new players to win and so when and you look big. at the future and win big and win and, and win big and so what you really want to do is learn uh, figure out what to do next when you don't know what's next Absolutely. You know, you can take tips from certain places, but you also need to do your due diligence to think about what what those might be, especially financially. And now I said this at the beginning, you know, this book could have been three books, but it's not. It's 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 one book. Uh, but we're going to wrap up this interview, the first of two, because I know we're going to do another one. Um, and I'm going to ask you this book. It's filled with wonderful advice and it's backed up with stories and factual data. Uh, that is true. Given the immensity of the issue, what are the three things that you'd like to leave the listeners with that they can apply to forecast a better future for themselves and their businesses? So that's end a, of number one. <laughs> that, 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 that's a whole other session. Um, uh, so, so the first, the first just three thing things, is, three things that three you, things, yeah. you, you the, would the say. First, the first. The first and most important uh, insight is, you know, don't assume that the the, the strategy you, you use at the poker table will work at the roulette table, right? Got like it. I think about this a lot, that the companies, organizations assume that what's worked in previous situations will work in the next one. So figure out the game before you pick your strategy. That's the mm -hmm. first takeaway. The second is, don't just look at what's been going on and, and say, hey, well, we do better, 6% better or worse this year uh, than last year. Like going into 2020, no one predicted the AMC uh, cinemas theaters was going to have an AMC year and nearly go bankrupt and have to take on a billion dollars. Right. And no one predicted that Zoom was going to have a Zoom year. Right. So things, the, the range of futures can go from A or to Or that Zoom. Moderna was going to have a Zoom year. <laughs> or, or, Moderna, or that Moderna was going to have a Zoom year. No. Um, I personally, I bought stock at $27 and I'm thinking, oh, it was 400 and something the other day. Yeah. It's back down now. But my point was, it's like, you know, 
who was Moderna? It wasn't even, you know, no one was, I know they were around, but my point was it, it, people weren't thinking about it, but um, that's how you just said that the guys that basically in, in these downtimes can profit tremendously. That's a great example. Uh, absolutely. And you, when you look at BioNTech is, a, is another example. And that was a technology that was sitting on the shelf for 25 years, the yeah, you know, yeah. mRNA vaccines slowly developing. Um, and, and all of a sudden there was huge value. And so the second thing is like, think about your innovation and portfolios. Don't, don't just make one big bet. Think about, you know, how do you make a broad enough range of bets about like those high potential, high risk opportunities, sustaining opportunities, right? And then the things that cause insurance and, and keep massive failures from occurring, like make sure that you have the right balance, just like you would in your stock portfolio. Uh, and make sure that, that those uh, bets are designed so that they're, whatever happens, you'll get the payoffs on the right timeline. Yeah. And most people, most companies, they, they just kind of make one bet and they, they trial the same experiment again and again and again trying to make it better. Like GM make, keeps making a better car and then they suddenly make a car that goes 150,000 miles without a tune-up, uh, which is a real problem for them because their entire business model is selling cars to dealers who make uh, money and maintain cash flow on the tune-ups and then sell a new car every three years. Right. If you don't need to see the dealer for another decade, the entire business model blows up and they didn't really think through the whole problem. They've got a, they've got a huge challenge in front of them now. Well, it's the numbers of stories, the ideas, the immensity of it is, is, you know, whenever you're talking about taking business and forecasting, and for my listeners, Rogue Waves uh, is the book we've been on with Jonathan Brill, uh, forecasting to kind of see how you can, and in your case, you don't say predict because there's so much science behind this uh, that you literally can apply uh, your principles that you're teaching in this book. Uh, and one of them is radical growth, the ABCs of radical growth. And I think a, a lot of companies are plodding along. I don't know how much more we'll see in demise of companies. Um, I know you could look at even the shopping centers. What the hell? <laughs> That's, that industry has been hit really hard. Uh, you, the, and Amazon was there to kind of pick up the slack uh, based on the amount of distribution ability they had to do it. So much of that to the average guy out there has not been available, or if it has been, they haven't been applying their knowledge or wisdom or expertise to really try and figure it out. I think now you really have to dig into this. What I would do is encourage the business owners listening, you know, go get this book, go to Jonathan's website, uh, download the chart that we're going to give it to you, read the book, uh, and we'll do a volume two on this, or I should say an episode two of this. And Jonathan, Pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, spending uh, approximately an hour with my listeners here. We're going to do another one uh, talking about your new book. Uh, kudos to you because you've been able to synthesize something in a in very few pages, actually, uh, that I would say most people who are in business should be reading, definitely reading. And once you read it, don't just read it, you know, take your highlighter, your yellow highlighter, and actually mark through the book and decide what you would like to do with it. So thanks so much, Jonathan. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here.